Hi, and welcome back to Plantopia. Plantopia is the plant health podcast of the American Phytopathological Society. And I'm the host of Plantopia, Jim Breedine. I'm a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president at Colorado State University. And today we are talking with Dr. Richard Dunkel. Rick holds a BS degree in zoology from UC Davis and a PhD in entomology with a minor in plant pathology, also from UC Davis. And Rick has spent his career in public service, first with the California Department of Food and Agriculture as a field entomologist. In that role, um, he established CDFA's biological control, pest management, and environmental monitoring programs. He later joined USDA Agricultural Research Service, and for 18 years, Rick was engaged in insect pathology research before pursuing several roles in management and leadership. That included Director of the U.S. Grain Marketing Research Laboratory, Director of the National Center for Agricultural Utilization Research, and Director of the Midwest Area. In 1999, Rick assumed the role of Deputy Administrator of USDA APHIS Plant Protection and Quarantine, overseeing USDA's plant regulatory and trade programs related to phytosanitary issues. And since 2008, Rick has served as the Senior Director of Seed Health and Trade for the American Seed Trade Association, or ASTA. ASTA is amongst the oldest trade associations in the U.S., and represents more than 650 companies involved in seed production and distribution, plant breeding, and related industries. ASTA is involved in nearly all issues related to plant germplasm, but focuses on three key areas, regulatory and legislative issues, new technologies impacting crops, communication and education of members and the public. And we're gonna talk more about ASTA in just a minute. In his role with ASTA, Rick oversees phytosanitary issues associated with international seed movement and coordinates issues related to seed quality, testing, and research. Rick, thanks so much for joining us on Plantopia. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to know a bit about how you got into your current role. You've had quite a career that started with zoology. Now you're, you're working in the area of seed pathology. How did you end up in this field? Okay, well, it's been a serendipitous route. Just a little uh, anecdote. When I got my uh, PhD degree, my major professor at the time uh, reminded me that it's this is not just a certificate that I'm an expert in some field of science. It's a certificate that I have learned how to learn. And so I think that's a message that students these days really need to understand because if they go 30 years into their career and look back, chances are they're not going to be doing what they were originally uh, trained to do. So, and I think I'm a pretty good case of that. I came out of college as, a, as an entomologist. I focused on insect pathology some, but I was also did a lot of field work uh, in biological control and some other areas. And then when I got into the uh, agricultural research service, I sort of went up, it, up the ranks into uh, management leadership. And so I had various positions of lab directors and so forth. And then in uh, 1999, I was recruited to come over to the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. And I had no intention of leaving ARS, but they told me the reason why they wanted me to come over was because they wanted to strengthen their science-based decision-making over there. They wanted to make sure their regulatory decisions were being based on science. 
And so that provided a great opportunity to uh, bring science more into the regulatory decision-making process. I spent about almost nine years in APHIS. I was the deputy administrator for plant protection and quarantine, so I managed all of the plant programs for the agency. And then uh, I finally decided to retire, but I couldn't stay retired very long. So I ended up being recruited by the American Seed Trade Association uh, to come in and help them with uh, phytosanitary issues related to seed business. And so actually looking back, I've been, I've been with ASTA now uh, 15 and a half years. Time flies when you're having a good time, I guess. This sounds like a great journey. Uh, I love that message that PhD degree or, or, or really any degree is um, all about knowing how to learn. And certainly the evolution of your career that, that we're all growing and changing throughout our career, that, that resonates with me as well. I think it's a really important message to share. Thanks for sharing that. I just wanted to add one little caveat to that, too. I was very fortunate in that I minored in plant pathology uh, as well. I was able, I went from science to policy and then back more towards science and technical issues when I came back to American Sea Trade. That broad spectrum, I'm sure, has served you very well throughout your career. So um, you've mentioned now American Sea Trade Association or or ASTA. Tell us a bit more about what ASTA is and, and what it does. Basically, ASTA, it's one of the oldest trade organizations in the United States. We've been around since 1883. We have around 650 members to 700 members in our association. Most of them are seed companies, but there are also various provider organizations as well. And even some universities are members of the American Seed Trade Association. But we advocate for the seed industry. And what's nice about ASTA is... We represent all aspects of the seed industry here in, in the United States. So we're, you know, A to Z, alfalfa to zucchini. We're large companies. We're small companies. We're biotech. We're organic. So we provide a forum for all of the different uh, sectors of the seed industry to come together, work through our common problems, and uh, work for policies. And then we advocate for our industry, uh, both nationally through Congress and whatnot, but also internationally as well. And a lot of your... Your involvement with ASTA right now focuses on international trade of seed. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. My primary focus is what we call phytosanitary. And for those who may not understand or know about phytosanitary, that basically that is code for seeds can be a pathway for moving unwanted pests and diseases from one place to another. You can have uh, a pests that are either on the seed or associated with the seed, like for example, various weed species, or in many cases, uh, fungal uh, fungal agents can be uh, sort of on the seed coat. And then when the seed moves to another country or whatever, then that can serve as a mechanism to transfer or transmit these unwanted pests uh, to uh, new environments. And the worst case scenarios in our industry are pathogens in particular that may be inside of the seed. So either seed born or what we call seed transmitted, where they're actually inside the genetics of the seed, perhaps, or right underneath the seed coat. Those kinds of pathogens, and most of those are like viruses, viroids, these kinds of things that are very difficult. Because once you have an organism inside of the seed, it's very difficult to inactivate it in particular. So that's the problem we have. How do you ensure that your seed consignments or your seed lots or your seed supplies are free of these various diseases and other pests? So help us understand how big the international seed trade is. Is it a little part of agriculture or a big part of agriculture? 
it's a significant part of agriculture, but it's a little more complicated too. It, overall, the, the value of the seed industry worldwide is probably 55 to $60 billion. It's a big collective industry. Out of that, you know, 10 to 15% of it is moving around internationally uh, at any one time. And the challenge we have in the seed industry per se is that distinguishes us from most other agricultural commodities is that there's a lot of seed movement internationally that's pre-commercial. Breeding lines, uh, for example, get moved around all over the place. Or you may have a parental line that's being increased in one country and the other parental line for that species is being increased in another country. Or you have counter-season production. You have all kinds of the different uh, pre-commercial activities that go on before that final product moves as well. So a lot of that, it's of high value to the company, but it, it's not being sold at that stage. So there's a lot of investment that goes on in those various stages. And are you focused primarily on imports or exports or both? I'm focused on both. I'm focused on both. It's a, it's a global industry. In the case of the U.S., it's 10 to $12 billion, I do believe, going in or out at any one time. So the U.S. imports just as much seed as it exports, if you will. So each of the issues are different from a regulatory point of view. When you're importing seed into the U.S., you have to comply with the U.S. phytosanitary import requirements. And when you are exporting U.S. seed or re-exporting it through the U.S., there's a lot of re-export in the, in the seed industry. Then you have to meet all of these different phytosanitary requirements of these other countries. And it gets very complicated. And so there's a whole, for example, international regulatory structure for this. There's a framework called the International Plant Protection Convention, which is a subsidiary of, the, uh, of FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization. And their primary role is to develop and establish international standards for movement of commodities around the world, including seeds. And so the idea is all of the countries that are members of the IPPC are supposed to be using those standards as guidance to, so that the practices can be harmonized around the world. Even with all of the standard activities, setting activities, there's still lots of problems. And I can get into those uh, as we move on. But it's a fascinating uh, area of, and it's, it's an area of science into itself. Let me take a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity from APS. The American Phytopathological Society, producer of the Plantopia podcast, offers a variety of online courses that explore topics of interest to the plant health community. And we're excited to announce a new professional development opportunity program for educators. Consisting of both independent learning and live virtual sessions, these mini courses are aimed at plant pathology educators with all levels of experience. Our first course runs June 5th through the 28th and focuses on applying principles of learning to improve teaching. Join us as we explore ways to leverage our modern understanding of learning to become more effective teachers. Register today using the link in our show notes at plantopiapodcast.org or visit APSnet.org. That's APSnet.org for more information. So plants interact with countless numbers of microbes, and, and that's probably true for seeds as well. Who decides when a microbe is something that needs to be regulated or, or it's just present everywhere and it doesn't pose a risk? Right. Well, in general, uh, what may be a common pest in one country may be a quarantine pest in another country. So in the case of the U.S. in corn, you know, we have a number of pathogens that are, are fairly common in the U.S. 
We have a High Plains virus, for example. We have Gosselin's wilt in corn. And these are fairly common pests. But if you go to Chile, those are quarantine pests. They do not occur in Chile or not supposed to occur in Chile. And so for them to regulate for a given pest, they have to go back to the international standards. And the justifications are that those pests either are not in their country or if they are, they're under what we call official control. So they're taking some kind of official action, either eradication or containment through uh, interior quarantines or some other mechanism to keep the pest from spreading in their country. It's a gamut all over the world. I mean, the pests occur in every country. Some of them are ubiquitous around the world. That's very true, and they're not regulated, but there are a lot of pests that, are, that fall into these various categories of either very restricted distributions in the world or common in one part of the world and not in others. And so uh, countries are, are, uh, are regulating or imposing phytosanitary import requirements to those pests where they are justified in doing so. Yeah, so it sounds as though the guidelines from FAO that you referenced are really positioned to help regulators utilize science as part of their decision-making process. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. For example, there's some there's some overarching standards that apply to about every commodity. So if, if a country wants to allow a commodity into their country, whether it's oranges or seeds, they have the authority to do what they call a risk assessment, a pest risk assessment. And so you have to identify all the possible pests that could be associated with that commodity coming into a country and then determining which of those are technically justified to regulate. Then you ask yourselves the question, what measures are out there that could be used to ensure that the commodity coming into their country is free from those pests? It could be a treatment. It could be a test. It could be uh, the use of a systems approach, a collective of various methodologies that would work together to uh, eliminate the pest uh, from that commodity prior to its entry to another country. Basically, when there's absence of true science, then you have risk assessments, which are probability assessments, if you will. Oftentimes, countries are in a, a situation where there's not enough published information about a particular pest, so they have to use their judgment, their scientific judgment, in terms of what the risk of entry of that pest might be. They have to look at it in terms of, well, what's the probability of entry if there's no mitigations at all? And then if it gets into my country, what's the likelihood that it would actually establish? And then what's the likelihood that it would spread and cause concern at a broader level? That's where it really gets difficult, I think, both for the countries involved, but for the industry as well, because it's the industry that's going to ultimately have to come up with the uh, program to mitigate. It is evaluated by that country of origin. So if we wanted to export corn seed to Argentina, whatever mitigation measures that we have would have to be ultimately endorsed by our country and approved by the country of import. So in a seedlot, let's say it's uh, for export, a U.S. seedlot that is being exported to another country, when there is a restricted pathogen detected, it sounds that there, at least in some cases, opportunities to mitigate that, that seedlot isn't just destroyed. Is that correct? Right. There's a lot of uh, leeway. Our problem in our industry is, is we're a collection of 300 sub-commodities. So each seed species has its own pest list, if you will. Now, the typical measures that are used for seeds are treatments where those are appropriate, and fumigation may be a treatment, but oftentimes for fungal pathogens, it's a fungicidal treatment. If you're in the growth stage of that plant, you know, where you're producing the seed, phytosanitary field inspections are often used. 
to make sure that the pathogen or the pest is not occurring in the production area, if you will. And then you, people are trained to go out and do these phytosanitary fuel inspections to certify that they're free from. Then there's the seed testing uh, option as well. And when you're looking at seed testing options, they can vary all over the, the place. It could just be looking at uh, seeds in a microscope and looking for things. It could be uh, a selective growth medium. You know, if you're looking at a bacteria, a bacterial pathogen or a fungus, you know, you may be able to uh, see evidence of that pathogen through uh, an agar medium over a course of time. The most difficult ones are ones where the pathogen may be inside of the seed. And if the pathogen's a virus or a viroid, those are the most difficult ones because you can't plate those out. They don't go through Cox postulates. Uh, you have to do a, a confirmatory bioassay if, if you go that route, which is very uh, onerous, if you will, in itself. So over the course of the last, say, 10 or 15 years, more and more countries have been advancing the use of PCR, molecular seed health testing, for these kinds of pathogens. And that that has really ramped up the issues, I think, for the seed industry, because in the international standard setting arena, there is a concept called the appropriate level of protection, the acceptable level of risk. What probability are you willing to accept? Because there, there's absolutely no risk in the world. There's low levels of risk. So what, what level of risk are you willing to take? And usually... Up until the last 10 or 15 years, that's, that's sort of been a probability assessment. You know, a, a 95% chance of detecting a 0.1% level of, of detection or a 1% level of, of infection. Well, now that we've got into, mole into molecular seed health testing, these methods are so sensitive. You know, what CT value do you want to cut off? If you go all the way up to like CT 32 or 35, you know, that's trace amounts. Now you're in a gray area where are you detecting enough DNA or RNA where that organism is, is biologically relevant? Is it capable of reproducing? Or are you down to fragments at that level of detection where, where you're below that capability for it to reproduce? And so what's happened is, is that the, in the regulatory world, it's pretty much black or white. If you run a PCR test for a particular pathogen and you get a, you get a hit, even at a very high CT value, that shipment may be rejected. That consignment may be rejected, even though it may not even be biologically relevant. And so we're seeing more and more of that happening. The acceptable level of risk then is defined by the level of sensitivity of the method. It's not even a biological situation anymore. You're down to that. You're down to squeaky, squeaky clean. And I'll give you an example where that really, we're experiencing this right now. I'll go back to High Plains virus on corn. This this virus is causing us a real-world uh, issue right now because High Plains virus commonly occurs in the U.S., and in this case, it's a quarantine pest for uh, the country of Chile. And there's a lot of sweet corn exports that go down to Chile, uh, a lot of breeding programs and these kinds of things. And so uh, High Plains virus is a uh, virus that can attack both wheat and corn, and a number of other small grains, but mainly wheat and corn. It's vectored by uh, the wheat curl mite. In the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of wheat growing in close proximity to sweet corn. The mite builds up in the wheat, and then when the wheat starts to dry down or starts to be, uh, get harvested, the mite uh, it becomes windblown and drifts over into uh, sweet corn fields. 
and there it begins to uh, feed, feed as a secondary pest on corn. Depending on the stage of the corn depends on the, the risk level of the high plains virus. It can be seed transmitted. That's one of the problems that we have. If it blows into corn where the seed is still being uh, developed in the plant, the lichen feed on the corn, inoculate the plant, and eventually some high plains can get into the seed at that stage. Now, seed transmission is very low, uh, but it's still there. On the other hand, if the corn is at a later stage and it's already set uh, seed, the mite will still feed on the corn plant, cause late season symptoms, but also maybe feed on the pericarp of the corn. So now at the end of the year, after you've harvested and you've run a molecular seed health test for high plains virus, you're going to get a positive. But in the case of that late season stage, it's not seed transmitted at that stage, but it'll be, if it's detected positive, the shipment will be injected. So we're, we're now actually uh, funding some research through some folks uh, at The Ohio State University, some ARS scientists uh, in partnership with The Ohio State University, to actually do some detailed studies on trying to correlate the stage of the plant with the infection to determine uh, under what conditions High Plains virus will be seed transmitted. And then secondly, uh, looking at do asymptomatic plants pose a phytosanitary risk? Because now, if you run a test on the plant, it could, it could be resistant to high plains virus. There are resistance genes for this, but there could be titers of the, of the high plains virus in the plant. If you test the plant, in particular with molecular methods, then uh, you're going to get a positive. But the question is, if the plant is resistant or even highly tolerant, is it transmitting high plains virus into the sea? Yes or no? And that's a key question that has to be answered. So we're looking at high plains virus not only to develop information specific for this issue, but this could also be a model for uh, similar viruses as well, because there's very little information in the literature about the nature of seed transmission and under what conditions it poses a significant risk. It's complicated, and I'll tell you why now, too, from the industry point of view, why this is so important. Chile is very is a very important country to the sweet corn industry because uh, there are a lot of breeding programs down there, and so there's a lot of a lot of breeding lines that are developed here in the United States that are sent down to Chile and further evaluated and developed and selected for and increased and these kinds of things. But to produce those lines, you may have a five-hectare field here in the U.S. that may have 5,000 different breeding lines represented in that one field. You go in under the traditional phytosanitary system, do a phytosanitary field inspection, and if you find some infected plants, even though you may be able to rogue them out or whatever, if you find them, that field can't be certified. So now those 5,000 lines can't get to chill it. Or if you want to do a seed health test, normally in the in, in the PCR arena, you need 1,000 or 3,000 or more seeds to run a PCR test. Well, one a session may be the seeds that are on a, a year of corn. You may have 300 seeds. So you're forced then to do it like a composite seed health test where you, you have to develop a sample that contains at least 1,000 or 2,000 seeds but that may represent, again, hundreds and hundreds of, breed, of different breeding lines. If you get a positive with PCR test, 
all of it. You don't know which session is causing you the problem. So they're all lost in a, in a breeding program. This is why it's so important. This is where we really need some research to help us out here. Again, drifting to another area that we're very interested in and also funding through a consortium is trying now to develop a microassay for these kinds of viruses and viroids, where in this case, we're uh, leveraging some research that's been done by some cancer scientists who have been able to find a way to uh, take microtumor cells, very, very small numbers of microtumor cells, and basically stick them on a glass plate so that they can challenge chemotherapeutic agents to them to see which agents may have show promise. And now we've borrowed that technology through a group at University of California at Irvine to take tomato plant cells, take the cell walls off, and take the protoplasts and glue them on these glass plates using the technology that was developed uh, through medicine and see if we can develop a microassay. So if you have a seed lot that tests positive, take an extract out very simply, challenge it to these protoplasts, and you might be able to get an answer in, in a day or two versus six to eight weeks, which is, is what a, a typical biological assay may, may take you. And this may be even more precise uh, as well. So there's just a lot of moving parts. But as, the, as these uh, various countries in the world go to molecular methods, it poses problems like this. One more problem I'll talk about with molecular technology is there are maybe five or eight different methods for the same pest. If we look at tomato brown rugose fruit virus, a number of PCR methodologies that have little differences in the primer sets or whatever are, be, are being used, what may give you a positive result using one method may not give you the same result using another. We may be certifying seed in the U.S. based on the method we're using, but if the receiving country is using a different method and wants to retest, well, they may get a different result. We have a lot of efforts going around now to try to do uh, international validation, ring testing and comparison of science and so forth in order to try to standardize this kind of technology for these purposes. And that's where it really gets difficult as well as expensive uh, for the industry. If you're out there in the pathology world and you're interested in molecular methods, there's a lot to do. If you're a field pathologist, we have a shortage of epidemiology-based scientists out there, field pathologists who could actually go out and tell the difference between one uh, kind of a bacterial pathogen versus a, a close relative, or how do you determine which ones are seen transmitted, which ones aren't. All these different things are so incredibly important uh, to our industry. Yeah, it sounds uh, as though seed pathology and certainly international trade of seed is uh, incredibly complex with uh, biological questions, um, obviously technical questions, uh, regulatory questions. And, and I want to pick up with a thread that you, you just mentioned, the, really the next generation of folks. It seems that there is a, a real need for well-trained professionals working in the seed pathology space. What advice do you have for professionals, uh, for students that are maybe interested in plant pathology, but they really want to work in seed pathology? What resources are out there for their training and professional development? Very interesting question. Back when I was in college, you know, back in the old days, ancient days, ancient history, University of California Davis, where I went, had a department of plant pathology. And many land-grant universities had departments of plant pathology, departments of entomology, and uh, there's been so much consolidation going on. This trend more toward 
molecular science in general, that the opportunities for training in seed pathology are, are now few and far between. Iowa State University, as I understand it, is the only university that actually has a seed pathology curriculum anymore. A number of universities will teach courses here and there in seed pathology, per se, or some aspects of seed pathology, but there are very few programs dedicated towards seed pathology, and even plant pathology, for that matter. In terms of resources, you know, APS, American Phytopath Society, is, is working hard to try to fill this gap. Industry is working hard to fill this gap. Uh, often what the industry does is uh, they'll hire promising scientists who may not be uh, specifically trained in, in an area of interest to a company. They'll bring them on and provide them that indoctrination. They'll provide extra educational opportunities within the company to even do that. I know some companies that uh, are putting on their own classes for their own people, as an example. APS are really looking into some virtual opportunities, virtual classes, as I say, opportunities in that area. I'm actually involved in working with them to put together what we call a Seed Pathology 101 virtual class. It'll be a 12-week class, uh, one major lecture a week to go through various aspects of seed pathology that brings in some of the things I've been talking about, international issues, phytosanitary issues, and these kinds of things. But also looking at seed production practices and how they can be actually manipulated to uh, manage seed pathogens and these kinds of things. And so it's very important. Some uh, campuses, University of California at Davis uh, is, is another good example of a college, a university that provides virtual classes that are related. And when you get into plant breeding in some of these areas, they'll bring in pathology, pathological aspects, and so forth. Look for internships. A number of companies provide uh, interns in their organizations. In our industry now, we've, we have a relatively new foundation called the Seed Science Foundation, which is a, a foundation that supports both research and educational aspects of seed pathology, among other areas of, of seed science. And we have websites for these things, and it's easy to find out uh, where these things are. For example, AST is also having a, a leadership uh, conference in Sacramento this June, and I know a number of companies are supporting uh, bringing students in to actually attend this conference and become exposed to what goes on in the seed industry, but also it provides opportunities for students to interact with company personnel that are going to be at these meetings as well. Lots of international opportunities. We have a, a lot of companies in our association that are multinational. So if given scientists is interested in doing some international work for breeding programs, for example, or whatever, there's all kinds of opportunities in the industry as well. And I would say some very exciting opportunities. The really great list of resources. Uh, we'll, we'll include links to some of the resources that Rick just mentioned at plantopiapodcast.org, the landing page for this particular episode. So, Rick, thank you so much for being with us on Plantopia to talk about seed pathology and international trade. I've learned a lot. Well, thank you. I hope I didn't ramble too much. Not, not at all. It's a fascinating field of study. We just heard from Dr. Richard Dunkel. Rick is the Senior Director of Seed Health and Trade for the American Seed Trade Association. And I'm Jim Breaking, the host of Plantopia Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk again soon.